Welcome to our last in this, as Keith said, in this, this series, the tenth in the series on the tenth commandments. Uh, we're, we're in Exodus chapter 20, um, and we're picking th- things up at verse 17. The words are going to be on the screen when Balu gets the slide up, and we'll be sharing them with the Zoom, the Zoom crowd. All you Zoomers out there, hello, and hello, Mum. Let's, let's get into it. And this is where I threw Balo off because I've already um, gone off piece, but never mind. We'll read the, <laughs> we'll read the, re- read the text. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So, Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's not an exhaustive list, and we don't have to worry if that we're free from any problems if um, our neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey, because it's anything that's your neighbor's. You can't say, my neighbor doesn't have an ox. Well, if you like the BMW, that's your version of the ox, of course. These are just some examples. When he talks of the house, it's, it's, it's the household. Your household includes all of your possession. It includes your home, your garden, your caravan, your golf club membership, your family, your children, your spouse, all your gear, all your stuff, possessions you own, the entertainment, the technology that's at your disposal, your income, your status. Everything that's connected to you is a part of your household. So everything is a possibility for coveting. You know something, something I learned this week, it's even possible to covet someone else's house group, home group. I mean, I mean, I enjoy Keith's home group. It's wonderful. We have a great time. But I saw a video of Paul and Fiona's home group this week, and now I covet membership of their home group. <laughs> if you don't know what I mean, you're going to see something on the screen. Yeah, you know, homework can be good, but will it ever be as good as Louise Brown doing Ghostbusters with a vacuum cleaner good? Because I don't think so. And I covet that. Thanks, Louise. Anyhow, getting back on topic, I had to shoehorn that in there somewhere, you know. But, uh, coveting is, is, is when you look at what you don't have, but what you'd like to have. And then it awakens in you a discontent that what you have and, and, and you desire something else. And of course, I don't mean the stuff that's a bit of fun. It's when it really grips you and when it starts to impact on what you want out of life. And although I've asked Victoria to put a vacuum backpack cleaner thing like Louise's on our shopping list, but, you know, that's not quite going to impact my life. Now, Paul explains this phenomenon in Romans chapter 7. 
And he says, I won't read the whole text, but it says something like, I went back and read the law. And he says, I didn't even know what coveting was until I heard about coveting. And then it awakened in me this desire to start coveting. And then Paul asked the question, so, so well, does that mean that God's law is bad? And he says, no. The answer is that I'm bad. God's law is good and I'm bad. So when there are sins that I haven't even thought of or considered, as soon as I even hear about them, I'm so bad that all of a sudden I'm attracted to them. The law is good and I'm bad and the law draws out sin. So next slide, please, Valerie, thanks. Yeah, we've got a definition of coveting. See, coveting is ungodly. It's discontented desire, passion, envy, craving, greed, jealousy, obsession, longing or lust for someone or something that's not supposed to be yours. In short, coveting is when you, want, is when you don't want what God does want for you. you. Could perhaps shrink that down a little bit. Coveting is when God says, this is what I want for you, and you say, that's not what I want for me. And there's this conflict between what God desires for us and what we desire. And that's where coveting starts and can give birth to death. Now the tenth commandment, this last commandment, is very unique in the, in the ten. First thing is it's internal. It's internal. It's not external. It's unique as a commandment because until now, the other nine have dealt with the external things. There's one God and he's out there. Don't steal stuff. That's out there. Don't murder anyone. That's out there. Don't commit adultery. That's all out there. This commandment is entirely in here. It's not just external. It's primarily internal. It's inside us. You can be coveting hugely and absolutely no one else will know a thing about it except you. If you're murdering or stealing or lying, or other people tend to spot that, that coveting's a private sin. It's a personal sin. It's an internal thing. Something that only you know yourself. And that makes it quite unique. And what we get from this is that God not only sees our works and hears our works, our words, he knows our hearts. He knows the thoughts of our minds. He knows the desires and longing, the deepest longings of our heart. And God judges all of it. And sometimes you hear people say, well, I'm not a bad person. But what they mean is, externally, they haven't disobeyed a lot of laws, but the truth is that God knows their heart. And, and he knows internally they've broken all of his laws, at least in principle, if not in practice. Secondly, then, it's unprecedented. Now, there's a term that's been overused this year. And the second thing is also makes it unique because the commandment's unprecedented in other moral codes. People sometimes say that the Christianity has the Ten Commandments for basis of morality and law, and other cultures have basically the same morality structure. No one thinks murder is a good idea. Now, that's untrue, because this commandment is the particular exception. You won't find other moral codes that try to govern the moral desires of people. In fact, laws, by definition, try to just limit external conduct, how we impact on each other, not our internal desires and motivations. Then, thirdly, it shows there's a difference between sin and crime. Murder is a crime and a sin. You can get arrested for it and, and go to hell. Coveting is a sin, but it isn't a crime. No government passes laws against coveting. Can you imagine the coveting police? It's just not going to work, is it? 
Coveting is something that's solely judged by God. And God invites us to judge ourselves. Sometimes people say things like, you can't judge me, you're not the judge of me. And here the point is, well, judge yourself. You know your heart, you know your desires, you know your longing and you know your passion, you know your motive. God the Holy Spirit will help you judge yourself. It's true a government can't come along and judge your heart for coveting just as well, really. In fact, a fellow believer can't come along and necessarily judge your heart for coveting. That's something that really only you know and the Holy Spirit will reveal to you. And fourthly, coveting is the root of other sins. God isn't just concerned about behaviour but also desire because they go together. Jesus puts it this way, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And the point is that good desires lead to good actions and bad desires lead to bad actions. And if you all, all you do is dealing with the actions, you aren't really helping people. You're not seeing any real change. What you're dealing with is behaviour modification instead of salvation. You're trying to get people to be moral instead of being born again. And what happens is our sin begins in our heart. That's why Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says, guard your heart, it's the wellspring of your life. Just as water flows out of a spring, so life flows out of your heart. Jesus says, out of our heart comes the desires we have, the words we speak. And some of you perhaps have been trying to get certain behaviours under control, certain addictions, certain compulsions, certain longings, certain failures, and you try and manage them. And God needs to do some work at the seat and the centre of who you are in your heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, he's not talking about the beating muscle, the organ that pumps blood around your body, but about the centre of our being, our core identity. We use the language when we say something like, it's time to get to the heart of the matter. Talk about getting to the essence, getting to the source, getting to the root. The word heart is used some 900 times in the Bible, at least in the, my translation, and here this issue of coveting is really a heart desire. It's an internal issue that leads to external action. And here's the big idea. If you deal with a heart problem, if you deal with a coveting problem, you solve so many other problems as a result. So let's do a quick recap of a couple of the commandments. The first commandment is, there's only one God. So God is authority. But if you covet God's authority, you'll sin by seeking to be sovereign, by being the highest authority in your own life. People who have fights in their life over, this, over his will and his way are really coveting his position in their life. And that leads to violating the first commandment. And I won't go through all the other nine, but we'll be here all day, but another really obvious example is the seventh commandment. Any guesses which one that is off your top of your head? Any guesses? Ooh, just, just here to whisper. It's the one Andy managed to embarrass us all with by talking about sex the other week, so do not commit adultery, number seven. Before adultery exists out there, it exists in here. So if you don't covet someone you're not supposed to sleep with, you won't commit adultery. See the obvious correlation. The way you commit adultery is first by coveting. That's how the seed germinates. If you covet with your heart, then you adulterate with your body. And if you deal with a coveting problem in your heart right at the start, then that will resolve any problem with adultery 
happening later on. So many sins start with our coveting something we shouldn't. It's cause and effect. That's why God put the coveting commandment as the last commandment. It's not just tacked on at the end as an afterthought. It really is the main point. It's a summary. The motivation, the behind what is so much of what we do wrong. It gets to the heart of the matter. And if we become aware of our proclivity for coveting, it reorganises our heart, which reorientates our life. And it helps us avoid violating the first nine commandments by being obedient to the tenth. Do you see that? Now, when God calls you not to covet, covet, I want you to understand who God is. God is a loving, perfect, gracious, concerned father. He's not this angry cross between a headmaster and a bank manager. He's our dad who loves us first and foremost and through everything. And if all you receive are laws and you don't know the lawgiver, then the laws make no sense whatsoever. We just present the Ten Commandments to non-Christians without telling them about Jesus, about telling them what he did and how that represents how much the Father loves us, then they aren't going to make any sense whatsoever. Just a bunch of rules. It ends up in morality. And there are moral people who are going to go to hell. Because we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by Jesus' good works. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved only because Jesus fulfilled the law. And some of you may bristle at the idea of God's law because you don't like laws, people telling you what to do. It's, it's the spirit of the age. No one can tell me what to do or be. I can be anything I want and no one can tell me no. At least that's what Twitter and Facepage and you swipe and all the rest of them would have you believe. But it's easier to understand the grace the laws are when you understand the heart of the Father who gives them. And when the Father gives us the laws... They're for our good, and they're for our flourishing. And, then if we, and if we believe that, then our lives will be so much the better for it. So when the Father says, do this, or don't do that, or what he's really saying is, don't hurt yourself, because he knows us, and he loves us, and we're just his children. So what the Bible does is, it picks up this concept of God the Father, and him giving laws and rules that are for his children in love. And it talks about the commandments, and it concludes with the commandment of not coveting. And from that time forward, the Bible revisits the idea of not coveting and it teaches us about the ways in which we hurt ourselves and we hurt others when we violate that commandment. So let's walk through a few of those. First of this is this. Coveting hurts God. See, when we break laws, we're not just breaking the Father's laws, we're breaking the Father's heart. If I tell my kids, don't do that, you're going to hurt yourself, don't play with matches, you're going to hurt someone else. And then they go ahead and do it anyway. They're not just violated the law. They've grieved me. Because I'm the dad and I care. And I don't want my children to hurt themselves. And I don't want them to hurt anyone else. The laws are an extension of the father. They're an expression of the father. So to violate those laws is to grieve the father. 1 Timothy 6 says this. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Can't get into this in too much detail because there isn't time, but some people are rich and some people are poor. 
That's how it always has been and how it always will be, Jesus says. The poor will always be with us. The Bible never commands one, commends one over the other necessarily. It says that those who are rich and love the Lord should be generous to those who are poor, particularly the poor who love the Lord. But the Bible doesn't in any way indicate that riches are a sign of blessing or that poverty is one either, on the other hand. There are rich people in the Bible who love the Lord. There are poor people who love the Lord. But the warning here to those who are rich is not to be arrogant and proud. And don't set your hopes on your wealth and your riches and the possessions and the comfort that they provide or that they might provide or you imagine they might provide. You're going to lose them all tomorrow. And if nothing else, on the day you die, you'll not be able to take them with you. Ultimately, the things that matter most are not things, but people. And that's why he says God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I want you to get that. Many may not have that fatherly view of God. How many of your parents or grandparents, who, when you give a gift to your child or your grandchild, you find great joy in them enjoying what you gave them? You love it when it's their birthday or Christmas and you've planned a great gift and you're excited to give it to them and, and you want them to see them open it and see their face when it brings, and it brings joy to your heart when you give them something they enjoy. Is there a slide missing? Oh well. I had a picture of Ethan to come up. I must have messed the slide order up. Apologies of that. It was from 12, a few years ago when he was little. It was quite cute. Never mind. And he was going to play a game with me with some toy soldiers that we'd, we'd, we'd bought, he'd got given for Christmas. We'd painted up between us and this smile on his face. I, I, I remember that picture. There it is. <laughs> Sorry, thanks at Balu. Well done. You can tell by the smile on his face that how much he thought of them and he loved them and I loved giving into them and I had great fun and I can't even remember who won the game it doesn't matter we just just the thought we shared that joy between us and seeing your kids it's a good job Ethan's got a mask on because he's not he's gone bright red um, and seeing your kids enjoy the gifts you give them is one of those wonderful things you can experience as a parent God's a father like that not about the toy soldiers thing but about the giving thing and the enjoying giving good things God's a father who's generous. God's a father who gives good gifts. Not just for our survival, but for our enjoyment. Which means sometimes God will spoil his kids. The character we're talking about is that God's a father who likes to spoil his kids. He just doesn't want his kids to act spoiled. He wants them to enjoy what he's richly provided, above and beyond what they need. And have you ever had that experience as a parent when you have a present and you wrapped it and they open the present and that face <laughs> it's not what they wanted maybe you've been, had that experience of being embarrassed at a birthday party when the kid's done that it breaks the father's heart when he gives us something to enjoy and with that bratty kid who well that's not what I wanted I want something else something better and that's exactly what coveting causes coveting causes us to want to enjoy something other than the father's gift that's all it is that's the heart of coveting that's where it comes from maybe you've seen a sunbeams that's a little or when he had little toddlers the two kids playing on the floor in a room filled with toys and one of them's playing with a big red truck and there are a thousand other toys to play with but what does the other kid want the big red truck they don't even want it really they just want it because that's what the other kid's playing with 
And the issue isn't the big red truck. It's the desire of the heart. Unless we had some spectacularly good parenting, it's incredibly hard to train that out of people. It's innate. It's an instinct. And it's reinforced by society. It's, for a lot of us, because it wasn't dealt with earlier as we grow up, we, it's not the red truck anymore. It's the red car. Or the woman driving the red car. Or the house with the red car on the drive. Or the boat the red car's towing. Or whatever. And it, and, and it just becomes more expensive and more complicated for the rest of our lives. And we're really just acting like spoilt little kids inside. And he gives us different gifts at different times. Sometimes we aren't really ready for what we want him to give us. And he says no. Sometimes he has another path for someone else. Sometimes he places great burdens and responsibilities alongside the gifts he gives others. And we don't see those. We just see the, the big gift. We don't see what else has gone alongside it. And he says, why can't my other kids just enjoy what I've given them? That's the father heart of God. And when we cry and wail and say, it's not fair, I want that, and spit the dummy, and, and we covet, we not only break his law, we break his heart. And sometimes when God doesn't give you something, it's not to punish you, but to protect you. God, I want that thing. I know, that's why I can't give it to you, because you want it too much. You aren't ready for it. It'll harm you, and I need to protect you. Toby's still learning to drive. He's waiting for lockdown desperately to, to, happen, to finish so he can get a driving test and get, get, get driving his car on his own. And he's over 18 now. If I'd given him keys to the car when he was 12, much as he wanted to have a go, it wouldn't have ended well. But now he's 18, it's okay. How many of you think when you look back at your life and you think about things that you really, really wanted at some point, people maybe, or experiences, or opportunities, and they never came? And now with the wisdom of hindsight, you think to yourself, it's actually a good thing I never got that. I wasn't ready for it. It would have destroyed me. The Father knows what's best. Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes it's later. And he's waiting for a point in your maturity when he can give you that particular gift, whatever it may be to you so coveting hurts God and then number two coveting hurts you now this isn't a picture of anyone in this, uh, in this church I got this one off the internet so don't worry and Jesus said to them take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for life. one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'll say that again and put my teeth in. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, in Luke chapter 12. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And we don't even believe that, do we? We believe that Jesus here has just lost the plot, spouting some hippie nonsense. It's crazy talk. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. He connects the desires of the heart with the possessions of the life. It's not only out of the outflow of the mouth that the heart speaks, it's also out, out of the overflow of the heart the wallet is emptied. Jesus is anticipating something that sociologists today call consumerism. Consumerism is a religion which has swept the developed world and is rapidly consuming the less developed world as well. You are what you drive. You are what you wear. You are what you date, who you date. You are who you marry. Those are things to glorify you. It's a worship issue. 
there to just show how great you are and how much you've accomplished and what value you have in society so that people will worship you and admire you because of what you possess. Advertising and marketing exist to create a desire in us that didn't previously exist, to simply stoke up that covetous nature. And we buy stuff that we don't even need and we go shopping for a hobby and we talk, walk around the supermarket and went in for a loaf of bread and we come out with an entire massive trolley full of stuff. And if it was the middle of Lidl, then it contains a wetsuit, three pairs of Wellingtons, a chrome plate, a set of socket wrenches, an entire croquet lawn because they were on sale. <laughs> and just look at all the money I saved. Well, that's just Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, you know, do, do you <laughs> I'll put a play for that later. And you know, Jesus was just saying crazy things. I just live my life just in the consisting of the abundance of my possessions. And Jesus says, guard your heart. It's vulnerable. You've got to get a grip on this. Otherwise, you're going to destroy yourself. It leads to hoarding. It leads to stealing. It leads to bad stewardship. It leads to debt. Jesus just said, if you just guard your heart, believe that your life doesn't consist of the abundance of your possessions, you'd stop hurting yourself. It's when, oh, I don't have that, but I want it. So I'm going to reorganize my life. I'll get into debt. I'll not be as generous. I'll not tie towards God, not have a heart for the poor, so that I can get what I covered, the car I want, or the new TV, whatever it is. And I want the red truck. And I'm going to spoil everyone's day, including my own, until I get to play with a red truck. Coveting hurts the people you love. James chapter 4 says this. What, covets, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come for your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Often we covet the people we know. And while we live in a day when we see the lives of celebrities and influencers, and the whole point is to get us to cover, oh, look at them, look at the car they drive, and the house they supposedly live in, and the, the multiple holidays they have in Dubai, and how they've lost weight, and how, look at their part, new partner, and how much better is any of that than anything I have? But actually, often the coveting's not with people who are far away, with people we don't know, but people we do know. They got married, to who? Them. They're punching above their weight. They've got to pay rise. How much? What do you mean they've got a bigger house? All of a sudden, someone we know, and we get a peek into the life and become very jealous of it. And then we want what they have. But we don't get it. So then we fight with them. We're angry with them. We go silent on them. So here's my question. Who are you jealous of? Be honest. Not just what you covered, but who are you jealous of? And then number two, how's your relationship with them going? Can you have a good, loving relationship with anyone you're jealous of or covetous of? Because if something goes so well with them, you're upset. And sometimes we do this publicly, we just tell them what we think. An act's bound to go well. But sometimes we do it privately. And it includes criticism and gossip and lying and judging. And the Bible says... We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Coveting stops us with rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. 
We're pregnant. Well, thanks for telling me that. You know we're still trying. Do you know how much that hurts me? Wow, can't be happy for me. We're engaged. Really? Well, I'm still single and some of us have it really hard, so thanks for your insensitivity. Rejoice with those who enjoice. Coveting hurts the people we love. And here's the point. If you're covetous of someone else, the problem's not between you and them. It's between you and God. That's what James says. You do not have because you do not ask God. So when you say, how come I don't get what they have? Well, because maybe your attitude. And maybe you're not asking. Maybe we need to pray something like, Father, I rejoice in this gift that you gave them. And I'm asking that you, maybe you may give it to me. And if you don't, I know you're a good father. And I trust you that maybe it's not for me. And I'm not maybe ready for it. Or maybe it's in the future. Or maybe it's never. Because you're asking me to walk a different path. But Dad, I trust you. And I'm going to tell you what I would like. And I will accept whatever your answer is. Always to that effect. It's all very parental. Coveting hurts the people you could love. Acts chapter 20. In everything I did, I showed you about this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The problem with coveting is that the blessing's in the receiving, not the giving. This is where I really have a problem with prosperity theology, because it's, prosperity theology is all about what we amass. But actually, real theology is about all that we share. God loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Giving is an opportunity to love people. Generosity is an opportunity to bless people. And in so doing, we are the ones who are blessed. Giving a gift is so often so much better than getting a gift. And coveting doesn't allow that. So we've got the picture. Coveting's bad. That's the big idea. It's not rocket science. We've all known the Ten Commandments since we were little. And I've maybe picked it apart a bit, but we really knew that big picture. What do you do with it? Paul says this. Crushing, coveting with contentment. Philippians chapter 4, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I, knew, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. So the antidote for coveting is contentment. Do you see that? You say, I don't want to be coveting. So ask the Holy Spirit to grow contentment in you. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says he knows how to be flat broke and he knows how to have more than enough. And he says he's learned the secret. Coveting's the problem. Contentment is the solution. Contentment's wanting not what we want, but what the Father wants for us. Coveting is, I want what I want. Contentment is, I want what he wants. So my dad must know some stuff I don't know. So if he tells me no, then that must be best. Because I know my dad loves me. And that's the place we need to be in. Contentment's not nurtured, nurtured by either poverty or prosperity. Paul says, I was content when I had nothing, and I was content when I had everything. People don't believe this. You know, people, people who are poor think, I'll be content when I'm rich. I remember being in that position when every month the bank statement, the numbers on the bank statement got bigger and redder every month compared to the last one. 
and whatever you tried, it just didn't seem to work. And you just think, oh, if I was only at the, at the end of that, I'd be content. And then you, know, you come through that state and, and, you, and you, the bank balance works out and you're still looking for the next thing and you're still looking, looking for the next thing. And I don't know whether Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, which whichever one they are, they're always going to be jealous of the other one because they just might be the richest person in the world. And that's how human, I don't know them personally, I haven't a clue what goes on in their head, but I imagine because that's human nature. And then people sometimes who are rich think, I need to get rid of all my stuff and be poor so I can be content because this stuff's getting between me and God. Well, God may be putting that on your heart, but not necessarily. Contentment's got nothing to do with what's in your hands, however much it is. It's everything to do with what's in your heart. And just getting rid of your stuff, you may end up still the same, in the same place. Maybe God wants you to have more and to use it wisely. Maybe God wants you to have less and to learn to discipline. But until you've dealt with the contentment issue, you haven't really dealt with the issue. Jesus was rich in heaven. He was poor on earth, and he's rich in heaven again. And he was content in all both circumstances. And we have, we have a world that's shouting about the poor and the rich. And the Bible said it's not about the poor and the rich, it's about the covetous and the contented. It's not an economic issue. It's a heart issue with economic implications. So I'll make one final point, and I'll conclude on that. Contentment's not actually achieved by crushing your desires. There's a difference between desire, a subtle difference between desire and covetousness. Some of us think to get rid of covetousness, we need to get rid of all desire. Well, that's actually Buddhism. It's not Christianity. Christianity is about passion and longing and appetite and desire for God and for good. And our passions can become very motivating. I want to serve other people. Great, good desire, nurture it. I want to know my spouse and to love them. Good desire, nurture it. I want to do ministry for God that counts and makes a difference in this world. Good desire, nurture it. The problem's not desire, it's unholy desire. The answer's not no desire, but God's desire. Let's pray that our covetous desires are replaced by godly desires. That we focus on using the gifts and the opportunities and the challenges and whatever is in the cup that we're asked to bear that our Father has given us well instead of worrying about the ones he's given other people. And let's praise God that Jesus has taught us all, has brought us all, and given us all a second chance. So my time's run, my time's long past. Thanks to Bob for putting the clock in the right place so I can see it. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the Ten Commandments together as a family, sharing your wisdom, sharing your knowledge, sharing your understanding of us. And thank you for what they show us of your heart, of your standards, of what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross in fulfilling your law. So even though we're incapable and undeserving, we can be brought into your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, help us desire your heart and to be content in your plans for us. Help us to seek to become ever closer to you in the sure knowledge that you love us. And you know what's best for us. Because we ask it in Jesus' name.